0: From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. In my last episode, I profiled Israel Keyes, a serial killer who moved to Anchorage in 2007. Many serial killer experts consider Keyes to be one of the most intelligent, organized serial killers of all times. He randomly chose victims who lived thousands of miles from his home, and he stashed murder kits around the country, planning to access them at some future date. It is easy to understand why Israel Keys wasn't captured sooner than he was. He methodically planned his crimes and always had an exit strategy. He only began making mistakes when his murderous impulses grew too strong for him to control, and these mistakes led to his apprehension. Around the same time Israel Keys was active, another serial killer stalked the residents of Anchorage. But the story of Joshua Wade and his crimes is far different than that of Israel Keys. Investigators consider Wade intelligent, but he did not stalk his victims or plan his crimes. His crimes were sloppy, happened on the spur of the moment, and usually were the result of him losing his temper. The legal system should have stopped Joshua Wade long before it did. Welcome to murder and mystery in the last frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. According to a 2015 University of Alaska Justice Center victimization survey, 50 out of every 100 women residing in Alaska have experienced intimate partner violence, sexual violence, or both. A 2016 report by the Violence Policy Center ranked Alaska first nationwide as the state with the highest homicide rate per capita of female victims killed by male offenders. Alaska Native women are the most at-risk group to become victims of violent crimes. Alaska Natives comprise only 20% of the state's population, but Alaska Native women represent 54% of Alaska's sexual assault victims. Compared to all other women in the U.S., Alaska Native women are 10 times more likely to experience domestic violence. In September 2000, Sheila Toomey with the Anchorage Daily News wrote a front-page story about six unsolved homicides in Anchorage. The article displayed the photos of the six victims. All were women. Five were Native Alaskan and one was African American. Nothing connected the victims, and police did not know if they were looking for one, two, or six murderers. 33-year-old Della Brown was the last of the six women to be found. A passerby discovered Della's body on Saturday, September 2, 2000, at 2.15 a.m. She'd been dumped in an abandoned shed near the CBS-affiliate KTVA Channel 11 News Studio in Anchorage. Della lay on her back with her blue jeans pulled down to her ankles. Her left arm rested on her abdomen... Her right arm was raised above her head, and her bra and blue tank top were pushed above her breast. Her head had been beaten so badly that one of the responding officers said the back of her skull felt like a bag of melting ice. Police found no weapon in the shed, but investigators believe a large rock had crushed her skull. The filthy shed where Della's body was found produced no usable trace evidence. The medical examiner found a pelvic hair as well as semen in Della's vagina. Della was highly intoxicated at the time of her death, and it took detectives little time to learn Della had struggled with alcoholism for many years. Maintaining her sobriety and attending AA meetings alternated with periods when she fell off the wagon and drank to the point of passing out. She had also tried to commit suicide a few times, and her last attempt occurred just a week before her death. Della did not have an easy life. Her mother moved to California when Della was a child, leaving Della in the care of her grandmother and step-grandfather. And her step-grandfather sexually abused her. At the time of Della's death, she was involved in an abusive relationship and her boyfriend was one of the first people police suspected had killed her. Before long, though, detectives became aware of another, more obvious person of interest. This young man told at least seven people he was the person who smashed in Della's head. He had even provided updates to his acquaintances as the molestation and murder occurred, taking several people to the shed to see Della's body. Not one of his friends tried to stop him, attempted to help Della, or even bothered to call 911. Twenty year old Joshua Wade and his three passengers, two young men and one young woman, were driving through the streets of Anchorage when they came across a woman passed out in the middle of the road. Josh wanted to run over her, but 19-year-old Dwayne Clevenger convinced Josh to stop and let him drag the woman out of the road. Dwayne left Della Brown near an abandoned shed. The group drove around a while longer, and then the three males went to a friend's automotive repair shop, a block from the shed where they'd left Della. They planned to spend the night at the garage working on cars and drinking whiskey and beer. A while after they arrived at the garage, Josh announced he was going back to the shed to see if the passed out woman had any money on her. Josh returned to the garage several times during the night, once asking for a condom. Witnesses said another time Wade returned to the garage covered in blood, and he admitted he'd killed the woman several of the young men in the garage claim Josh took them to the shed to show them the body of Della Brown. Most of these young men had police records and were at least partially intoxicated the night of Della's murder. None of them wanted to get involved with the police, and Wade threatened to kill them if they told the police what he had done. No one said anything until a few days after Della's body was found and police offered an award for information leading to the capture of Della's killer. With the promise of award money, the young men from the garage began to talk. On two separate occasions, detectives wired Josh Wade's acquaintances and sent them to talk to Wade. Wade not only made incriminating statements about killing Della, but when shown the news story, written by Sheila Toomey in the Anchorage Daily News about the six murdered Anchorage women, Wade suggested to his friends he had killed three of the women. Police felt they had gathered more than enough evidence against Wade, and they arrested him and charged him with Della Brown's rape and murder, as well as six other counts, including tampering with evidence. Mary Ann Henry was named lead prosecutor in the case. Miss Henry, a Harvard graduate, was the first woman to prosecute homicides in the state of Alaska. Marcy McDaniel assisted Mary Ann. Marcy was a young, inexperienced lawyer, eager to learn from one of the best prosecutors in the state. Mary Ann Henry knew the prosecution had almost no forensic evidence. They had no weapon and no trace evidence. The semen and pubic hair found in Della did not belong to Josh Wade, and Wade also did not leave the bloody fingerprint found in the shed. The prosecution did have a strong circumstantial case, though. Seven witnesses came forward to state Wade confessed he killed Della. The witnesses saw blood on Wade's clothes, but unfortunately investigators were unable to find the bloody clothes. The prosecution also had the tape of Wade admitting to two of his friends he'd killed Della and suggesting he might have killed two other women. Henry knew the prosecution witnesses were not solid citizens. They were petty criminals who had been impaired by drugs and alcohol the night of the murder, and they had trouble remembering dates, times, and the sequence of events. Still, they all told virtually the same story and their story should convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Josh Wade was very lucky, though. His defense lawyers, Jim McComas and Cindy Strout, were considered two of the best in the state, and they had a dual-pronged approach for securing a non-guilty verdict for their client. First, since Joshua Wade was a talker and a braggart, his lawyers put forth the theory that Wade found Della's dead body in the abandoned shed. And then, to gain street cred with his new criminal acquaintances, he told them he murdered Della and even took them to the shed to show them her body as proof. Furthermore, when shown the photo of the murdered women in the paper, Josh could not resist claiming he not only murdered Della, but also murdered two of the other women. Secondly, the defense pointed to a sloppy work by the Anchorage Police Department and the Anchorage District Attorney's Office, claiming they stopped investigating before they found the true murderer. Police never discovered who the semen, pubic hair, and bloody fingerprint belonged to, and they had several other viable suspects who could have murdered Della, including her violent boyfriend. A month into the trial, lead prosecutor Mary Ann Henry suddenly stepped down from the case, claiming health problems. She dropped the prosecution of Joshua Wade into the lap of the very inexperienced Marcy McDonnell. Carrie Brady, another young, inexperienced attorney, stepped in to assist McDonnell. Neither attorney had ever prosecuted a homicide before, and both admitted afterwards they were in way over their heads. The prosecution case suffered serious problems before Henry quit, but once she was gone, the inexperience of the two prosecutors only highlighted the claims by the defense, insisting the prosecution brought the case to trial before they thoroughly investigated it. After two and one-half months of testimony, the jury deliberated one week before they returned with a verdict. They found Joshua Wade not guilty, on all counts except for tampering with evidence. And for this offense, he received a six-and-one-half-year prison sentence, minus time he'd already served. In December 2004, Joshua Wade was released from jail, and Anchorage law enforcement officials feared they had just unleashed a ticking time bomb. Let me take a break for a minute and tell you how I relax. Writing true crime stories sometimes weighs me down, and I need to switch my focus to something fun. Recently, I downloaded the free game app, Best Fiends, and I love it. The game is designed for adults, but it's appropriate for everyone, and it consists of a series of puzzles. At the lower levels, Best Fiends seem simple, as you collect cute characters who help you defeat the slugs and gather flowers, strawberries, leaves, and water. But the puzzles grow more challenging as you progress. I hate to brag, but I made it to level 40. And on a recent vacation, my husband saw how engrossed I was in the game and decided to download it and give it a try. Now we're in a fierce competition as we move through the progressive levels, and I'll admit he has already surpassed me. Download Best Fiends and battle the slugs with Quincy, Howie, Temper, Brittle, Tantrum, and the gang. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. On August 7, 2007, Kathy Hodges, a nurse in Fairbanks, called the Anchorage Police Department to report her friend Mindy Schloss missing. Mindy was a 52-year-old psychiatric advanced nurse practitioner who worked one week in Fairbanks and the next week in Anchorage, where she had a home. When Mindy did not return to Fairbanks in time for her shift there, her friend and colleague became concerned. Police entered Mindy's home in Anchorage, but nothing seemed amiss to them. When they spoke with some of Mindy's friends, though, They realized something was wrong, and Mindy Schloss had mysteriously disappeared. One of Mindy's friends said Mindy liked a tidy house and always left her house neat before leaving for her shift in Fairbanks. She never would have left dirty dishes and papers on her counter. Also, Mindy always placed a check on the kitchen counter for the lady who cleaned her house. Even more suspicious, though, Mindy's car was not parked in the garage, and friends insisted she always left her car in the garage and took a cab to the airport when flying up to Fairbanks for work. Anchorage Police Detective Pam Paranode contacted Mindy's bank to see if there had been any unusual activity with Mindy's account. A bank official told paranode someone made an ATM withdrawal of $500 from Mindy's account on Friday, August 5th, at 5.01 a.m. Mindy's friends did not think Mindy would make an ATM withdrawal so early in the morning, and they explained she rarely used her ATM card. Detective Perrinode contacted the FBI and requested assistance in obtaining information about withdrawals made from Mindy's account. The FBI soon retrieved a video of the person who made the withdrawal, from the account in the early morning hours of August 5th. All they could discern from the video was the person who withdrew the money was a man wearing a blue and white bandana tied around his face and a dark baseball cap pulled low over his forehead. In the grainy ATM footage, the man briefly pulled down the bandana and for three or four frames, the camera caught a shot of his chin. The FBI also learned that at 4.16 the following morning, the same figure entered another ATM kiosk and withdrew an additional $500 from Mindy's account. He took the cash but left the kiosk before retrieving the card from the machine. When he returned to the kiosk a few minutes later, the machine had swallowed the card, a safety measure implemented by the bank to ensure forgotten cards would not be stolen police asked Mindy's friends if they recognized the Caucasian man in the ATM video, but they said they had no idea who he was. Detective Paranode knocked on doors and talked to Mindy's neighbors. No one had seen Mindy for several days, but nearly every neighbor mentioned the rowdy young people who lived next door to her. The neighbors complained about the young men who drank, smoked, and through loud parties, sometimes lasting all night. Paranode attempted to contact these noisy neighbors, but she could not find anyone at home the first several times she went to their house. Mindy's missing 2000 Acura Integra was found in the parking lot of a building near the airport. Mindy's purse and wallet lay on the back seat of the car and in the trunk, detectives found a suitcase containing rumpled clothes and Mindy's laptop computer. Not long after the discovery of the car, Perrinode learned the two teenagers staying in the house next door to Mindy had rented a room to an ex-convict by the name of Joshua Wade. Perrinode and her colleagues begin to have a bad feeling about what had happened to Mindy Schloss. FBI agents used bloodhounds to help with the investigation. They took two hounds, one at a time, to the first ATM where the suspect used Mindy's card. They had each dog sniff the scent from the driver's seat of Mindy's car and then let the dog sniff the area around the ATM to see if the dogs could follow a scent trail. Each dog separately led detectives from the ATM to a door of the house where Joshua Wade was living. The agents then took the dogs to the second ATM where Mindy's card was used. The first ATM was close to Mindy's house, but the second ATM was located five miles from her home. Even at the furthest ATM, though, the dogs picked up the scent trail and led investigators back to Wade's house. Paranode had been skeptical about using the scent dogs, but she watched in amazement as the dogs-led detectives cross-country on the route Wade would have followed on his bicycle. Paranode obtained a search warrant, and police searched the house where Josh lived. They found a jacket resembling the jacket in the ATM video, and in the pocket of the jacket, they found an ATM receipt for $500. Police also found a gold watch hidden in a closet and when they showed it to Mindy's friends, they confirmed it was her watch. When the Anchorage TV news stations showed the photo of the lower half of the face from the video at the ATM, two of Joshua Wade's past girlfriends identified the man as Wade. One of Wade's friends handed over Wade's phone to the police. And on the phone, they found a photo showing Wade holding a 45 caliber Glock pistol. Police assumed this was the weapon used to murder Mindy Schloss. Detective Perrinode also found Mindy's ATM PIN number stored on Wade's phone. Alaska does not have the death penalty, but because bank fraud is a federal crime, the federal government could pursue the death penalty against Wade, If authorities could prove the bank fraud was related to the murder of Mindy Schloss. Nearly a month after she disappeared, Mindy Schloss's body was found in an undeveloped neighborhood in Wasilla. She had been shot once in the back of the head and left in a heavily wooded area. After a standoff with police, Wade finally surrendered. He admitted to killing Mindy and said he walked her into the woods told her to kneel down, and then shot her. Wade made a deal to avoid the death penalty. He not only admitted to Mindy's murder, but also confessed he had killed Della Brown. When sentencing Wade, the judge told him he was a coward who attacked defenseless women. Wade lost his temper, and not wanting anyone to think he preyed on women, he shouted, "'What about the men?' The judge sentenced Wade to life in prison with no possibility of parole. But in the summer of 2014, Wade claimed he was being mistreated in prison in Alaska and struck a deal for a transfer to a federal prison in Indiana. As his part of the deal, he admitted to the murders of three men in Anchorage, and he claimed he committed his first murder when he was only 14 years old. He has not so far admitted to murdering any other women, and some wonder what to believe. Police think he killed at least two of the three men he claimed he murdered, but many who know Wade believe he killed more women. Three of the murders of the six Anchorage women featured in the 2000 Anchorage Daily News article remain unsolved. We might never know if Joshua Wade had anything to do with their deaths or if he killed other women. Acquaintances claim Joshua Wade often voiced his hatred for Alaska natives, but authorities do not know if these feelings had anything to do with his choice of murder victims. Mindy Schloss was not an Alaska native, but Della Brown was. Joshua Wade is an angry man, incapable of controlling his temper, even in prison. He has been transferred several times and is now housed at a maximum security federal penitentiary in Waymart, Pennsylvania, where he spends most of his time in solitary confinement. Prison officials classify Wade as one of the most assaultive, predatory, riotous, or seriously disruptive prisoners. How do we compare Joshua Wade to Israel Keyes? They are both serial killers, and there's no question they were both monsters who preyed on innocent people. While Israel Keyes presented a cold, calculating demeanor, though, Josh Wade seemed to simply have a short fuse and no impulse control. Wade was a ticking time bomb, ready to blow at any moment, Both were terrifying predators, but I ask myself, which type frightens me the most? What variety of monster do you find the scariest? Thank you for listening, and please check the show notes to find references for this podcast. I am an author, and I write Alaska wilderness mysteries. I've written four novels set in the wilderness of Kodiak Island. I also write a monthly newsletter about murder and mystery in Alaska. Check the show notes for more information on my novels and my newsletter. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.